seven year old then a man who could sell these. And um, I looked carefully at this audience and I spotted a few banjos who had dressed down on the advice of the police. And I spotted a few troublemakers from the previous 2009 crisis that they'd been allowed into the city. But anyway, I welcome you all here. Um, so we have a very exciting panel, which includes um, Tarek Al Jawani, who is a senior partner with Zed Advisory and Islamic Banking Finance Consultancy in London. He is the author of a book called The Problem with Interest. And he's the editor of an Islamic finance uh, website, islamicfinance.com. And then, of course, there is Dr. Peter Selby, until recently Bishop of Worcester and Bishop to Her Majesty's Prison. I first got to know Peter when his book, Grace and Mortgage, The Language of Faith and Death of the World, was published. When was it published, Peter, originally? 97. In 97, way before many, many people predicted this crisis. And I'm delighted to be able to tell you that his publishers are reissuing the book uh, and responding to demand. He's now president of the National Council for Independent Monitoring Bodies, uh, monitoring fairness and respect for people in custody. And he's also a visiting professor in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies. And then we have here Zachary Cooper, who is the director of Business for New Europe, a think tank set up in 2006 to articulate a culture case for reform in Europe. And he previously worked in the office of Jonathan Sachs, the chief rabbi. I am uh, really looking forward to the debate, and we're going to begin with Tarek uh, Al-Jawani. Thank you very much, Anne. Um, it's not really a, a debate that I, I'm looking for. I hope we can have a discussion, you know, because I think there is a lot of common ground between us. Here, no. <laughs> sh sh shall I? Shall I put this? A can you hear me now? Okay. Um, well, yes, I worked in the city for some years as a, an interest rate derivatives dealer, uh, and then uh, when I saw the light and started practicing Islam, I decided that I should go into Islamic finance, uh, and that was about 15 years ago. Um, and when I made that transition, I uh, was asked quite frequently by some of my old colleagues, uh, and particularly by some uh, theoretical economists, why it was that religion should interfere in finance. Uh, because for somebody who comes from that economic and financial, orthodox economic and financial background, uh, they like to uh, deal with things objectively, scientifically, look at facts on the ground, and not bring value judgments, religious baggage into the equation. They don't want to tell people what they should do. They just want to deal with the what is of life. Uh, and my answer to those kind of statements uh, is that really modern finance has become a religion uh, in its own right. And the proof of that is that modern finance makes many value judgments. Uh, if you uh, look at the way they taught us at university, I, I left university believing that the purpose of corporate activity was to maximize shareholder value. When we measure uh, the performance of a country, we look at gross domestic product, which is stated in monetary units. And we're living in a, a world that's very materialistic that uses the, the measure of money for almost everything. Uh, and so, you know, divorce, pollution, stress, these kind of factors, which are very real and, and really do impact people, they're completely ignored. Uh, in these statistical measures of how we're doing. And that means that a, a country that's monetarily uh, poor but happy is regarded to be less successful than a country that's monetarily uh, rich but unhappy. Uh, so, you know, it comes down to the fact that, uh, the, you know, if you're making profit, you're successful. And that's a very, very big value judgment for modern finance to make. And so there are many others, and, and that's one of them, and I, I won't stay on that. But you see, we have brought uh, the should-be's of life into modern financial theory. And so the question is, which set of value judgments are we going to use? And I simply choose to use the religious set of value judgments that comes with Islam, and many are shared uh, between Christianity and Judaism. Uh, and 
I believe that they're correct because they come from the one who created us. In Islam, the uh, purpose of life is to worship God. That's the central purpose. Wealth, material things, uh, technology is a, per is a way of uh, meeting that ends, but it doesn't become an end in itself. Uh, and so uh, we really see life as just a test uh, uh, in which God put us in order to measure whether we can achieve the objective of worshipping him. And when you, when you have that idea, when you believe that you're going to stand in front of God on the day of judgment and answer for what you did in this life, everything, you know, the things that you thought you got away with, as well as the things that came into the public domain, if, if that's your attitude, then that's actually a very powerful regulator of your financial activity and your social activity. And I would say that it's much more powerful than having to follow a set of regulations wherever they come from that are externally imposed on you. Perhaps they come from the Financial Services Authority. And we know that when regulations are external, then it's never as strong as following something which comes from within when you really do believe <coughs> this set of principles and you want to follow it. You know, whether someone sees you paying yourself that bonus that you don't deserve or whether someone sees you doing something that you really shouldn't, it doesn't really matter because you know that God sees you. And that's the thing that ultimately stops you. And I think that's the thing that's missing in, in uh, very much missing in financial regulation today, this sense of in internally generated responsibility. We talk about corporate governance, but we don't really talk about human governance very much. Uh, so w when we look at these regulations, and you'll tell me when I've got a couple of minutes, won't you? Um, when you look at these regulations that religion gives, in Islam, we have objectives, and we have rules for achieving those objectives. It's not seen as enough for us just to have the spirit of the law. We must have the rules for achieving that spirit and the objectives that uh, religion brings. And you will see that, therefore, many religions prohibit murder and theft. These are things which the rational and secular mind can agree on, because it's obvious that they destroy the basis of society. But there are some rules that are not immediately obvious to many secular minds, and one of them is the central issue of usury today. That has become a subject which we simply can't discuss in modern economic thought. You, you hardly ever see the word usury in modern economic discussions. And yet, if you look at the history of the last 2,000 years, Moses prohibited usury in Exodus, uh, or the last 3,500 years, Moses prohibited it, Jesus, uh, prohibited usury in Luke, uh, lend freely hoping for nothing thereby. Muhammad, uh, peace be upon them all, prohibited usury uh, in the Quran. And for 1,500 years, the Christian world stuck to this prohibition. If you tried to lend money outside the doors of this church 500 years ago, you would have been committing a criminal offense. And yet today, we've moved from the position where the one who practices usury has, has left you know, the, the gutter and been put in a plush city boardroom where he is more powerful than the prime minister, arguably. You know, it, even the prime minister has to go to parliament to change the rate of tax, but you know, the, the central banker can put up the interest rate and make you poorer in a single announcement. Now, that's quite a degree of power. So how has that happened? And I would say that it's happened through legal semantics, through vested interests, who became very wealthy through usury, returning some of the profits of usury into that lobby which was in favor of usury. Banks, if they have the power to create credit or create money, to use clear language today, they have an enormous power. They can cause boom and bust simply by changing the money supply. And with that power, you can subvert government, you can subvert law, and I would argue that that's what they've done. And the tragedy of this system now is after 500 years, we've come to a position where globally, the system has nowhere else to go. There are no new nations to exploit. Look in Africa, five million children dying every year because of the pressure of debt service, says the UN. Look at deforestation. The fastest deforesting countries in the world are also the most indebted because they have to cut down the trees to pay off the debt interest. Here in the rich world, paradoxically called the rich world, you know, people are suffering the stress of debt, they're suffering home repossession, the, the emotional and financial pressures of the debt system are really, uh, uh, according to, to Lord Griffiths, uh, who I, I think you know, Peter, uh, has put 10 million people into a position where they say financial uh, debts are seriously affecting the quality of their life. 
So, you know, that is what that is doing to the world in general. And I think that in Islam, uh, just to take one more minute, we, we do have some solutions for this, and these are solutions that have been applied by other societies in previous eras, that we believe that it's fair to share the profits if you finance a businessman. You know, if he makes a profit, you share it. If he makes a loss, you, you, you share that loss. Whereas in interest-based finance, whether or not your client makes a loss in his business, you still want your capital and your interest repaid, and you'll take security. You'll take his house and sell it to get your loan back if necessary. With profit-sharing finance, the interests of clients and financiers are tied together much more closely because as a financier, your profit depends on his profit. And these are kind of issues that, you know, we have to bring to the surface. We can't just rescue this old system. My final point is this, because we have been told that this financial crisis has come about because banks lent too much money. And yet we're also being told that the solution is for the banks to lend more money. And, and that paradox can't be addressed unless we get to the crux of the matter, which is usury and money creation and the failure to share the risks and rewards of your client. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I'm delighted to be here. And uh, I'm in the rather intimidating position of being on a panel where every other member of the panel has written a book on the subject. But nonetheless, I'm going to try my best. Perhaps it's something to aspire to in the future. Um, I'm actually going to split my remarks into two. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about history, first of all, and Jewish history specifically in the UK. Uh, and then I'd like to talk a little bit about Jewish theology. So first of all, for the history. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Jewish history, but uh, the fact that this event is taking place here is, is very apposite because Jewish history in the UK um, dates back about a thousand years and Jews first settled in this part, in this part of the UK, in the city itself. Um, they came here um, in Norman times and it's thought that about 3,000 Jews settled in England after, the, the, um, after William the Conqueror invaded. Um, and synagogues were very much clustered around this area. In fact, if you go out this church and cross the street, you can come to a street called Old, Old Jewry, and there's a, a plaque on, on the wall of that street that um, denotes where one of the old synagogues from that era was. I think it, it was there until about 1270 or so. And um, as Tarek has already alluded to, um, at this time, Jews had a particular role in English society because um, whereas Christians were not allowed to lend money at interest, Jews actually were able to. I mean, that, that was their function is soci in society. And of course, uh, charging interest was seen by the m mainstream as sort of unchristian and perhaps at worst sinful and evil. So Jews became moneylenders. That was their role in society. In fact, it's fascinating. I don't have time to go into it today, but one of the more famous Jewish moneylenders was a guy called Aaron of Lincoln in the 12th century. And he had amongst his clients the Archbishop of Canterbury, various other bishops, the King of Scotland. Um, and actually his funds helped to build a Lincoln Cathedral uh, and abbeys at Peterborough and St. Albans, I believe. But there was obviously a link between the sort of Jewish function in society and usury and anti-Semitism, because there was increased resentment about the interest that was being charged uh, by, by Jewish moneylenders, and this led to attacks on Jewish people. Uh, we had the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215, which said that no one who lent money could actually have a Christian burial. So that meant that um, the Jewish function was all the more uh, uh, sort of identified with, with moneylending. And uh, again, I don't have time to go into all the various edicts that were passed, but just to pick out two, in 1275, the king passed the Statute of Jury, uh, which made usury illegal and linked it to blasphemy. Uh, Jews were, were arrested, their property went to the crown. Uh, and in 1290, King Edward actually expelled the Jews from England uh, and by passing what was called the Edict of Expulsion. So in a way, you know, I, I, I've come here and told you a part of Jewish history in England, which is a very dismal and negative part, 
But on the plus side of the coin, whereas England had led the way in intolerance towards its Jewish minority, it led the way in tolerance in readmitting the Jews in the 17th century under Oliver Cromwell. Um, and, uh, and thereby after Jews settled again in this part of, of, of England and in London, around here, the East End and the city, uh, and they built synagogues and established communities. And because the bans on uh, usury had been somewhat lifted by the church by that time, Jews were therefore able to occupy different positions. They became merchants and traders. Uh, and over time, uh, you know, overcoming significant barriers, managed to build up some very, very successful businesses um, and had a sort of significant impact on the history of the city. Um, so, um, whereas, uh, you know, the regulation of the market had, um, had siphoned the Jewish community into a particular area back in the 11th and 12th century, the, the opening up of the market in terms of the opportunities that Jews were able to pursue allowed them to um, flourish over time in this country. Uh, and as I say, modern Jewish history in Britain dates back to 1656, so it's about 350 years old. So I think Jewish history is quite instructive in considering this question. Now for a bit of theology. Um, this is quite a broad and long subject. I'm by no means an expert, but my starting premise is that Judaism, like all the major religions, has something useful to say about economics. There are some people who think that religion should be privatized. It's for the home, it's not for the public sp space. I probably, like my fellow panelists, believe that Judaism has something very valuable to contribute to modern debates around public policy, including those on, on economic matters. And whilst it's true that Judaism may not have strong views on tripartite regulation, or perhaps the recent report we had from Lord Turner, the chairman of the FSA, it does have various principles that it can, can teach us. In fact, it's estimated that about a quarter of the laws in the Bible, and it's the book that we all share after all, relate to economics, the marketplace, the relationship between employer and employee. So there's a whole body of, of guidance within, within our holy scriptures. And ju just quickly, uh, to talk about the Jewish view of credit and interest, which we've heard something about the Islamic view, just a little bit about the, the Jewish view. I think Judaism takes a more relaxed view um, to the charging of interest. So lending and borrowing the charging of interest is obviously permitted, but it obviously needs to be regulated against the prospect of charging excessive interest, or perhaps if the means of making that money is dubious. Um, there is particular guidance uh, about lending to the poor, um, and again, I could read quotes from scripture, but I, I don't want to sort of, um, I, I don't want to take up too much time, but uh, perhaps if you wanted the references, you could, we could have a, a word after this. Um, but, but another strong point to, to emphasize is that the cancellation of debt is very much integral to the Jewish tradition. Uh, we have the idea of the Jubilee in Deuteronomy, whereby all debts will be canceled. Uh, and in, in fact, that inspired many Jewish groups to be involved in the Drop the Debt campaign, Make Poverty History, back in 2005, I think it was. So the, 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 big, the biblical principles are there. Now look, if you, are, if you pushed me and said, well, look, what, what are the principles that Judaism advocates for regulation? I've identified five principles, and I'll very quickly run through them if, if you bear with me. The first is integrity and honesty, absolutely fundamental. Uh, Tariq was talking about this inbuilt value system, and Judaism preaches a very similar sort of edict. And in fact, um, it, it's taught that the first question will, you'll be asked when you reach the heavenly court on passing from this earth is not, did you believe in God, actually, but it's, were you honest in your business affairs? That's how high priority Judaism places on, on honesty in business. Number two is responsibility. Um, the responsibility is two-way. It's both on the lender and the borrower, it's true. But the lender has particular responsibilities. Um, in fact, there's a teaching from one of the great Jewish scriptures called Ethics of the Fathers, which says, um, let your fellow's money be as precious to you as your own. So this idea of responsibility, responsible credit, um, and I've referred to about the importance of, of using <coughs> lending and borrowing to, to help the poor or, or to not overburden the poor, and there are various rulings on that too. Um, number three is transparency. Obviously, you're not allowed to give people misleading advice. You need to declare an interest. There's a very fa famous biblical teaching from Leviticus about not placing a stumbling block before the blind. And from that, the rabbinic, rabbinic commentators 
uh, identified a whole sort of layer of, of, of regulations around the conduct of economics and business. Um, number four is looking towards the long term. I mean, the market is very much about the here and now, but a great thing that religion has to say is that, you know, the here and now is not the be all and end all. Um, and that, you know, there has to be a long term vision about the common good, the good of society. We have to think about social consequences. Um, and I think, you know, one of the more hopeful signs we've seen from the business community generally has been a, an awareness of corporate responsibility. Um, charitable giving has increased, notwithstanding, obviously, difficulties in the recent recession, or the current recession, I should say. Um, fifth one, I know I've got, I'm running out of time. Fifth one, very quickly, but very important. Religion teaches us enough, the theology of enough, if, if you like. Um, and uh, again, the very famous thing from Ethics of the Father is, um, who is rich? One who is satisfied with his lot. So from religion, we learn that um, you know, unmitigated growth is, is, should not be the target. In fact, we learn that from the structure of time, because every week, just as in the other religions, religions Judaism has a Sabbath, sanctified time every Saturday, uh, where you're not permitted to work, uh, uh, as, you're aware, as you're aware. So just sort of rounding off, as I'm aware I'm running out of time, I think religion, um, I think in a way that the current sort of financial crisis and economic downturn has shown us that, that in many respects we've lost our moral bearings. All that matters is, is what legal, it, it, you know, if it's legal, it's fine, never mind sort of all sorts of responsibilities and social consequences. And perhaps the current crisis gives us an opportunity to re-emphasize uh, the role of religion in, in the debate and really to try and articulate this notion of moral capitalism. Thank you very much, Larky. I found that fascinating. And I Thank you very much. I want to start uh, from where I'm sitting. Uh, I'm sitting uh, with a Jewish person on my right and a Muslim person on my left. And I do think that anybody in that position who speaks out of a, a Christian perspective uh, has to start with a certain amount of sackcloth and ashes. The subject we are discussing is, as Zaki made absolutely clear, but which I would also think has to do deeply with relationships between Christians and Muslims. Uh, this, this subject is absolutely integral to the history of violence and persecution which has characterized the worst moments of the relationships among the faiths. Um, and I think that it was very salutary indeed, if, if I may say so, that Zaki should have reminded us of, of a history, which includes, incidentally, just, just across the river, all those Shylock speeches that would have been uh, delivered in the Globe Theatre, um, and which tell us a lot about the, the deep roots of anti-Semitism, anti-Judaic anti thinking, in our, in our society. And when we actually reflect on how that is working itself out for Jewish people, for Palestinian people, for the victims of terrorism and the people who feel driven to perpetrate it, we cannot say other than that this subject, which has bred so much distress, uh, is absolutely central to interfaith exploration um, and a great deal of interfaith exploration it seems to me um, 
It does so at the level of ideas, comparing uh, the different faiths' views about Jesus or about eternal life. It, it seems to me that the dynamic between the faiths has been occasioned at least as much, I think more actually, um, by an economic history and a violent history, and that we need to take that very seriously. Now to Christian faith and usury. Um, as, as has been said, and as you, as you will know, um, I worked for uh, 10 years of my life as, as the bishop of an English diocese. And um, one of the things that I had to do was to make assessments of people uh, who were offering themselves for ministry in the church. And one of the questions you had to ask them was whether they had any debts. And, um, and of course, uh, with the current student loan system and all the rest of it, um, that would be pretty much everybody. So what you had to do was to assess whether the debts were such that they wouldn't really be able to survive. And whenever I did that, I felt a deep inner discomfort. The reason I felt a discomfort was that the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century, it was, it was it, it decreed that clergy could not lend money at interest. And as Zaki uh, summarized, uh, later councils extended that to the laity and repeated it and reaffirmed it about the clergy. I have to say that when people reaffirm rules, it usually means they're being broken. I mean, uh, so um, uh, that's, you can use it to provide evidence that the church took a strong line, or you can took, use it as evidence that the church wasn't taking a very effective line. But at any rate, that was the line. The line was that you could be too rich to be ordained if you used your riches improperly. And now, here I was enacting um, a view that you could be too poor. And that gave me pause for thought often. But what also gave me pause for thought was the extent to which our entire institutional framework in society was causing people to become involved in the debt economy, whether they wanted to or not. And uh, this is the season of Lent, and, and my two colleagues also have uh, times of spe special religious observance. And that comes from an ancient wisdom that if you want to change people's opinions, you don't argue with them, you get them to do things that will change their opinions. Where people put their body, then their faith will be. So if you create a higher education system which requires that people borrow money, and if you create a housing system that requires that people borrow money, they will very quickly come to believe that that's the right way to live. And that the people who are lending them this money are doing them a favor, even though they're making a huge profit out of it. So, I mean, what is, I think, deeply troubling about our society is the extent to which we have actually educated one another to believe certain things that it will be extremely difficult to change our minds about. And we'll only change our minds about them if we start doing different things. Uh, those of you who, who, who know my little uh, book on, on this will know that there's research to show that students arrived at university believing it was wrong to get into debt, found that they had to, and ended their time at university believing it was right to get into debt. And that's an absolutely clear example of how you can make it impossible for people to adhere to a view that they start life with. And our grandparents would be horrified at the attitudes we now take to lending and borrowing. So I, um, I believe that we need to look at our history very closely. When Christians, and you can argue whether they were wise or not, began to lift the absolute prohibitions on debt, uh, on lending money at interest, they did so actually very guardedly and only in relation to certain kinds of debt. The, the, the prohibitions that are to be found in the Torah remained in place. There were still to be limits on what you could do to pursue a debt. 
I asked a friend of mine who was a secretary of a water company whether he thought it was right that they had the right to disconnect for non-payment. And he said, yes, otherwise nobody would pay their water bill. And I said, is that why you pay your water bill? Oh, no, he said. <laughs> uh, it's always these other people out there who need these sticks applied to them to get them to do things for money. And, and I want to say that what has happened in the last 30 years since the helter-skelter ideological deregulation of the finance sector is an object lesson in what happens when, as my colleagues have said, you allow certain principles of life to go on being held, but without any of the legal and physical restraints on behavior which teach us how to live according to those principles. It is, it is the ancient wisdom of the faiths represented here that if you get people to do certain things, you will change their hearts and minds. And we have stopped getting people to live within their means. We have stopped the arrangement whereby there were limits to what you could do to pursue a debt, and the result is the mayhem we have just inherited. Thank you very much, Peter. Right, well now this is open to you um, to pose questions to our panel. Can you all hear me, by the way? Because apparently I haven't switched on my mic. I'll stand up. So it's, it's over to you to pose questions to our panel. I know that you will have been moved and, um, and stirred up, I hope, by these questions. So if you would just give me your name and perhaps something about where you're from, that would be helpful, and I'll call you as your hands go up. First gentleman there. Julian Bond from the Christian Hello, Muslim Forum. Our camera person is... is Julian Bond from the Christian Muslim Forum. What would you urge ordinary people to do? What would you, sorry, was that what would you urge ordinary people to do? Yes. Can we take a couple more questions before we go further? Yes, that lady there. Elizabeth Welsh from the United Reformed Church. And I think my question is following where Peter finished is, where is there hope then? Because it felt like we were saying, once upon a time in the past, we had these values, and now we've gotten into a world in which these values which have undergirded our finances have disappeared. Uh, is there actually hope to retain those values, or are we in such a place that there isn't hope? And where does the hope lie? Right, if I, if I can just repeat the question so everyone here has heard it. The, that question is, where is their hope? Where does the hope lie, in short? Uh, another question over there? Sorry, the lady at the back first and then Peter. Deborah Sabalot, I'm a financial services lawyer. Uh, I think the question to the panel is, with the G20 in town this week, what would you be recommending to them if you had their ear? Right. With the G20 in town, what would you be recommending to them? And Peter here. this morning to hear Gordon Brown and Kenneth Ru Kevin Rudd give absolutely brilliant, eloquent, I'm afraid platitudinous statements about morals and values. Brilliant, brilliant stuff, but nothing about the technical structures. Would the panel care to comment on how money should be created? William Temple in 1945 or so said we must return money to be publicly created. It's people's money, not banks, and it should be created free of interest. Would you comment? Good. Have you got that last question, panel? Um, William Temple and, you know, how was money, should money be publicly created? Right. 
can I, would you like to start uh, perhaps, Tarek? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> ordinary people to do what? Yeah, that's, I spend a lot of time thinking about that, Julian, as you know. Um, I think we have to educate ourselves and then others. We have to try and uh, walk the talk as best we can. I mean, get rid of credit cards, personal debts if possible, do what you can to live your own belief, but recognize that we're trapped in a system. And that means we need to engage in activism because we're not gonna be given the solution that we want. The people who have caused the debt entrapment globally are making about a trillion to two trillion dollars per year in most years out of the thing as it is, the system as it is, and they're not gonna give it up. What they will come to us out of the G20 with is a solution that is actually the old system in new clothes. So if we can you know, activate, campaign, put issues on the table, and know also, and try and remain patient because you know, it's God who's in charge at the end of the day of whether this produces a result. That's what we believe as Muslims. And I think in England they say man proposes and God disposes. So really we can't do any more than try our best. And after that we just have to, you know, accept that this may be the way that God wants it to be in this time. Tarek, so, so can, but can one other, Peter, do you want to take on the question about hope? <laughs> I'm going to say something that I think is really um, an awful thing to say. Um, and I'll say why I think that in a sec. Um, I do think that this chaos that is happening um, is a clear sign that we live in a moral universe and um, that we live um, under a providence that is not moral. And at the end of the day, um, that uh, is our hope. Um, uh, if the systems of wickedness could flourish uninterrupted, that would be a very hopeless situation. Now, why that's a horrible thing to say is because, of course, what is happening at the moment is damaging and hurting the lives of millions of people. And um, you, don't, you don't lightly, you probably don't at all say to somebody, well, I think your distress is a really hopeful sign that um, things are in, in, in God's hands. I mean, the, the deep unfairnesses of the, of the outcomes of wickedness are there to see, and they are part of the sign of what wickedness is. But actually, um, I, have, I have still to stand by the view that it is more hopeful to live in a world in the hands of a just and loving creator than to live in a world in nobody's hands or into the hands, in the hands of the bankers. Zaki, can I ask you to deal with the G20 question and then I'm going to ask the, all of the panel to, to deal with the question about currency creation. Would, can you yeah, deal with of the course, G20? Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, the G20 agenda, well, uh, <laughs> There are three or four things I think we need to see from the G20, uh, particularly from a faith perspective. Um, one is a sort of reaffirmation towards the MDGs. We've heard a lot, a lot of political rhetoric in the last few years about the importance of the MDGs, but we need leaders to assert the, the importance of the fact that through the global recession, you know, the poor of the world will not lose out and developing countries will not lose out. And we saw an intervention, I think, yesterday by various fake leaders in the UK making a plea for that to be the case. So I think that's very important. Um, another is, uh, you know, looking at the global picture, clearly there are, there are regions and countries in particular economic distress. And if we look at the European continent, which kind of relates to my, my day job, we see Eastern Europe has been suffering particularly. Uh, I think two, three countries have already gone to the IMF for a bailout, Latvia, Hungary, and Romania. Um, and, and I think uh, the countries around the G20 table have to think very carefully about helping those regions of the world in distress. And 
the concrete way you do that is by pledging money towards an IMF fund so the IMF has got proper resources to help them when they're in dire straits. And, and a third area is on trade. I mean, again, Doha, it's, it's becoming a bit of a joke, but the Doha trade round has been around since 2001. Uh, and it's called the Doha Development Round. I mean, the idea was that it, it would be particularly uh, helpful to developing countries. And I think the developed, the mature developed world, if you like, has to uh, show its graciousness by uh, being willing to open its markets to, de to developing countries. Uh, and really, the G world leaders of the G20 need to not just say they're going to give Doha another go, but really kind of get their teeth into it. So those are three areas. Good. And um, can we have short sharp responses on the question of currency because it is a d an issue that could engage us for, for several hours actually <laughs> okay um, yeah look I, I think that there needs to be both public and private sources of, of money in an economy I mean it's an obvious thing to say I mean clearly we've seen that the, you know things have not worked perfectly in the banking system and that, uh, that you know the banks do need I think a tighter uh, uh, framework of regulation uh, but at the same time, I suppose we don't want to design a new uh, financial architecture such that, you know, banks are completely, such that credit dries up in the economy because credit is, is the cornerstone of the economy and people being able to, to reasonably borrow um, is, a, is a way of generating economic growth. But I think obviously we've gone too far and we need tighter rules to restrain people. Back. Tarek? Um, well, I always give the example of several of the Muslim empires in the past, in Spain, Iraq, Turkey, Ottoman Empire, Egypt, the Arabian Peninsula, which functioned very well without usury and without money creation by a banking system. They used commodity money. If you wanted to create money, you went and dug for it out of the ground. You know, no one could just press a button and create it out of nothing. When you give that power to a private sector organization, they will create as much money as possible because the more they create, the more they can lend, and the more they lend, the more interest they earn. And that's why we're all in debt. We do not allow people to run private armies, and um, we do not, therefore, in my opinion, rightly allow people to create private money. Um, both the regulation of the economy and the regulation of violence uh, are to be in an ordered society in the hands of the sovereign, which in our case needs to be a democratic, democratically accountable authority. The, the fallacy behind giving the power to create money to the private sector is, of course, that they are not accountable to the public. They are statutorily accountable to their own private interests. You're not allowed as a director of a company to act other than in the best interests of the company. And you may, you may modify that if there's enough pressure from various sources but actually, that's where your bottom line uh, is. And so I, um, I'm not after a new uh, financial architecture, if I may say so. I'm out to reestablish the old one um, in which um, money was created by the sovereign authority and not by anyone else. Right. Um, more questions. Um, the, young, the woman at the back. Well, there's two women at the back. Is that right? Both of you have got your hands up? Did you have your hand up? No. First you, and then you, and then this gentleman here. Right, let's go. My name's Sally Reith, and I'm from Shared Interest. Um, what Shared Interest does is, possibly as uh, Julian mentioned earlier, um, is we offer some way of a solution um, to what's being talked about here. We are an ethical investment organisation, and we support fair trade producers and buyers directly, and our members here in the UK invest with us. We pull the investment together. That investment is then loaned out to the producers and buyers. So my question to the panel really is, how would an organization like ours engage with organizations like yours, faith communities and faith groups like yours? Did you get that? Okay, a shared interest in organizations like How do they engage with faith communities? Two. No, sorry, this gentleman, no, no, sorry, sorry. that gentleman first. <laughs> now, don't fight over this. No. Right. Oh, Off you go. Okay. Sorry. Uh, Gavin Oldham, uh, I'm Chief Executive of the Share Centre, which is a retail stockbroker, and I'm also a member of the General Synod of the Church of England. Um, at the heart of the Christian faith is uh, the understanding that God is love. In fact, that's what St. John says in his epistles. 
Uh, and that is unconditional love. And of course, if we really live by unconditional love, and I stress the word unconditional, we would know that we could give freely to each other without actually needing to have a means of exchange or money at all. But unfortunately, the world doesn't work like that. And uh, there is um, inevitably a balance between giving and receiving. I think my question really is about the way that we have learned to receive, um, uh, but not actually uh, to count the giving at all. And I think what you were saying when you introduced Peter Selby about the earth being treated as a credit card is the heart of my question. Because in fact, what we're really doing is, is receiving today so that people in the future will have to give on our behalf. And we do that at every level in society, not just ourselves when we borrow money, but also in government, and particularly in government, when we have unfunded pension schemes, when we do student debt. Um, all these things which, which actually burden future generations. And I've not heard anything yet about the intergenerational debt which we're passing on. And I'd like to hear you talk about how we are going to wind back from this immense burden of debt which we're going to pass on to the next generations. Because that, I think, is really at the heart of the issue, is the only way by rampant inflation. So, how do we deal with intergenerational debt? And the third question? Hello, yeah, I'm Stephen Hine from IRIS, Ethical Investment Research Services, and also you the need IRIS to Foundation. Speak a little more slowly, because okay. it's quite hard for us to okay. hear with the echo. Um, Stephen Hine from IRIS, which stands for the Ethical Investment Research Services in London, and our, my parent body, the IRIS Foundation. Um, it's less a question and more of a comment to say, well, what can we all do? I think part of it is looking at how we each of us manage our own money. And whatever one's view is on, on interest and usury, I think we all do have the opportunity to question where we put our money, be it a bank or an insurance or a mortgage, and to ask questions of those financial institutions if we feel uncomfortable about how they're behaving. And if I could recommend three websites to look at, if that's okay. One for pensions is the fairpensions.org, which is a separate NGO uh, of which I've previously been the chair. Um, IRIS has a charity SRI.org website for charities, churches, and foundations who want to understand these issues in practical terms. And also, the IRIS Foundation will be launching something called YourEthicalMoney.org on the 1st of June to help individuals around this sort of maze. So I think if we're trying to get responsible investment and responsible finance on the agenda of, of big G20 meetings, it's one thing, but I think as individuals, we can do a lot, and also the stuff that any of yourselves have done in terms of your 18 different points, whatever the number is, of, of, of things in the financial crisis. Thank you. Thank you for that. And I think in the spirit of Just Share, I might ask Rachel to make sure that those addresses, those website addresses, go up on the website. Now, one last question to the panel. Hello, Richard Higginson from the Faith in Business Project at Ridley Hall. It's a question about the charging of interest. Um, as I understand it, at the heart of the Old Testament prohibition is a concern that the poor should not be exploited, which you brought out, Zaki. And my question really is about microcredit, because one apparent sign of hope in the world is that microcredit institutions are uh, lending money to small producers in the developing world and helping them bring them out of poverty. Um, and yet, many of these institutions are actually charging interest. The Grameen Bank, for instance, in a strongly Muslim country, Bangladesh, charges interest, but yet does so in a way that does not seem to be exploitative, but helps poor producers. So my question really is, is the problem with interest itself or with the way in which uh, money is lent, uh, the purposes behind it and the terms on which it's lent? Thank you. So another question about interest, and this time referring to microcredit, and I'm very glad you raised that. I was in Orissa in India and watched as a, a local bank was providing loans to women at 18% and above. And these women were repaying these loans in very short time, so didn't feel the pain of the interest. But nevertheless, the rates were extremely high. So thank you for that question. Right, who would like to tackle those three questions, or one of those three questions? Peter? Uh, let me uh, comment, if I may, on the uh, shared interest and the microcredit um, question. I mean, um, I, I think those, those, uh, that's a question about how you live in the world as it is. 
Um, and I'm, uh, I mean, I was confronted uh, when I was researching this with a whole lot of enormously, not only well-intentioned, but extremely effective initiatives. They included not just those two, shared interest and microcredit, but also credit unions and all the valuable work that the Citizens Advice Bureau do about debt counseling and a whole lot of initiatives which, which were being taken. I might even say big initiatives like the Jubilee 2000 campaign, of which and all of, all of them you said to yourself, well, this is only part of what's needed. <clears throat> and it's really important that people who go after those initiatives do so because they really make a difference to people's lives as long as we also are aware that we're just avoiding, easily avoiding the real problem and that our very best activities to do with living in the world as it is can provide an alibi for the people who want to keep the world as it is. And I'm not in favor of that. Okay, I'll give it a quick go. We had four, four questions, so four very quick answers. First, on, on, on ethical investment, um, uh, and you asked about engaging with each of our communities. One of the fascinating trends in the Jewish community in Britain and the Jewish uh, community worldwide has been a, a sort of upsurge in social action. And in fact, I used to work for, for Jonathan Sachs, who's the chief rabbi, and he's now in his, the second decade of his, his time in office, and he labeled that the, the decade of Jewish responsibility, and he's written a book called To Heal a Fractured World on the back of that. And there are organizations that are very much pursuing that agenda. And if I were to pick out one, there's something called the Pears Foundation, a very interesting organization who've just produced a Jewish guide to fair trade. Someone from that organization came and spoke at my synagogue recently. So the Jewish community is very much in that area. On receiving and giving an intergenerational debt, I think the, my only comment is a huge area. My only comment was that I think the issue of climate change has focused people's minds much more on intergenerational legacies, uh, and uh, that's been a strong component of the debate, I think, in the UK and beyond. Um, the gentleman's point about you know, how, how people manage their own money is very important as a reflection of society's values. Absolutely, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I mean, you know, morali morality starts at home. I, I always remember the comment by Mrs. Thatcher is that she learned to manage the nation's wealth by managing a budget at home, you know, when she was <laughs> looking after her, her own home. So I think that's quite, that's quite instructive. Uh, and the question on microcredit, um, I can't remember exactly if I mentioned it in my comments earlier, but Maimonides, who was a rabbi who lived in Spain and Egypt in the 11th and 11 and 1200s, um, he, he made very clear that um, you weren't allowed to lend money if you know that the borrower is not going to be able to repay you. So, um, you know, you, I think you have to bear in mind the means of the borrower, and so long as the, the borrower has the means to repay you, then you know, that, that's a sensible, sensible uh, tr transaction, if you like, in the economy. So. Intergenerational uh, issue. The uh, interest is the main driver of intergenerational irresponsibility. There was a very good example that was given uh, 20 years ago um, uh, by a researcher in, in Sussex, University of Sussex, who said that if you've got a farmer who can farm sustainably and make 100 pounds of profit a year, foreseeable future, like his forefathers had. And he was given the opportunity to make 150 pounds profit a year um, for 50 which his land becomes desert. If you put this into a discounted cash flow analysis, which banks and financial companies are always doing at a rate of 10%, then you go for the 15 year period with the deforestation or the desertification that comes afterwards. So because this tool is so widespread, we are actually, by our financing methods, causing these problems for subsequent generations. Mm. And we just have to take away the cause. Uh, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, even though usury is much, it always leads to utter poverty. And, and for us, that's not a, an opinion of an economist. It's actually an economic law because it comes from a prophet. And you can see the poverty happening around. Just look at the buildings they're building over here. You know, we don't build beautiful things like this anymore. We can't afford to. We're building, you know, plastic sheds, basically. You can see it in everything. Um, the the microcredit, uh, Richard, um, you see, Islamic microcredit should work on the basis of profit sharing. Um, 
Grameen Bank is charging 20 to 30% interest per year in, in Bangladesh. It doesn't claim to be Islamic. But because there's such a shortage of money, it actually is worth doing for people because their return on assets is more than 20 or 30% per year. And so that's you know, driving the economy. The time will come when the interest rate may well exceed what the economy can produce. And so you know, for us, the solution is to link the rate of return to the investor to the rate of return on the project. And then you don't have a problem. You don't have negative equity or bankruptcy. I think it is a, a problem in essence eventually, although many economies can succeed with an interest-based financial system for a period of time. And we, we know that it has happened. Um, sh uh, do you want me to do one more? Is that no, it? I, th I think yeah. that's okay. good. Fine. I have a, a final round of questions. We've only got a couple more minutes. Is that right, Rachel? So if you can be short and sharp, if there are any more questions for the panel. Right, please, that woman over there in the corner and that gentleman at the back. Hello, I'm, I'm an interloper. I arrived part way through having been in St. Paul's Cathedral. My name is Janet Warren. I'm from Oxford, just north of Oxford, so I've met Gavin before. Ten years ago in St. Paul's Cathedral, Gordon Brown said, or words to the effect, and you'll remember this, when the poverty is so deep, the suffering so intense, we cannot, we must not, bury the hopes of a quarter of humanity in lifeless vaults of gold. I submitted a question, how's it going? That question, of course, didn't get answered, but I think we have a very strong working point here, and that is to remember what our politicians have said, and don't let them forget it. I, I felt so strongly, as did others, that we were given just total whitewash today, and it was just so frustrating. And can I say thank you to the people here and the rector who invited me to come in. This has saved the day. But we have to hang on to what they've said. Thank you. Good advice there. And I think that links in with what um, Tarek was saying about how we need to be activists. And I, I would go further and say how we need to be politically active. Because one of the things that has happened over this period is that our political institutions have been hollowed out. And um, because we're not in there and fighting our causes, our House of Commons is no longer a, an effective place for reform and for change and for protest. And so I, I would strongly urge more activism in whichever political party suits you best. Another gentleman at the back. Hello, my name is Lance McPherson. I'm with Global Tolerance. We recently ran a poll on Facebook, which looked at and analyzed the, the views of people of faith towards the financial situation. And we found that 70% of the respondents actually saw this as a watershed opportunity instead of a crisis. Now, the people protesting on the streets may be seeing very much the crisis aspect, but many people are seeing the opportunity that is at hand here. And my question has to do with, as, as Gordon Brown was saying today, the faith leaders must play an important role in shaping that opportunity that we have at hand. And I would like your view on practically how the faith leaders can engage to shape the values that you've put forward into the regulation or into actual frameworks which will lead and guide us into a more successful future. Thank you for that. That's a very important question. And yes, one final question from the back. Um, I think one of the interesting things about those of us who minister in churches in the city is that there's been a complete sea change in the culture around here. And suddenly, um, Christians and other people of faith are making at least as much sense as anybody else. Um, at a uh, Just Share rally and seminar, was it last May or the May before, um, I heard Anne Pettifor say um, two things which, which have, uh, have been a sort of mantra for me. First of all, there should be no more credit than there is value in the economy, and no more credit uh, than people can actually repay, some of which, and we've heard that repeated by others. And since last September, I've been running that mantra past some very, very senior bankers when I've ended up next to them at various events. And one um, particularly said to me, he had no idea what I was talking about. 
This was very early on. This was in September. I suspect if I asked again, it might be different. And one of the things that he and others have said is that risk is an essential component in the wealth creation of the financial service industry. Um, and that if that is, risk is eliminated either by regulation or by an alteration in people's moral compass, then there will be no wealth creation in the way we've been used to it. And I'm wondering whether those on the panel think there's any way in which risk can be recaptured into trust and into faith. Right, so we've had a comment thanking Just Share, which we'd like to all echo, and urging us to act further. And we've had a question about the way in which the faith organizations can shape a new value system. And finally, a question about risk. So I'm going to ask um, you all three to deal with risk first, and then about shaping values, and to do that in 30 seconds, if you can. Starting, why don't we start with the Tarek? Um, well, I'm, I'm hoping that Peter, Zaki, and myself can at least put together a common statement that we can move forward with maybe, I don't know, a press release or even in our just, just our private discussions with people that we three managed to agree on something that can be done. My proposal, uh, there were two. One, that we uh, eliminate the right of private companies to create money, uh, put it with the state, or uh, uh, put it in a, a commodity monetary system as I you know, have proposed. It's a, it's a big, big thing, you know, and that's a political battle that needs to be fought. It won't be won overnight. But there are some practical things that can be done. We've put, what, three, four hundred billion to save the banking system when last year we couldn't pay 30 million quid to the police to give them their contracted pay rise. Suddenly all this money's appeared from nothing. We can repay the debts of the poorest 10 million people in this country with less money than they've just given to the banks. Isn't that something practical we can do? Wouldn't that actually get the economy moving? Wouldn't it actually help people more directly and more quickly? As for risk, in Islam we believe that reward comes with risk. And, you know, if you take the risk of doing business, you deserve to get some reward if there is any. We can't eliminate risk from life. Uh, that's a simple but position. But I would add that if you take risks, you also have to share in the losses. Yes, And the way that's in the which point. the banking system has worked is that the risks have led to gains, and when the losses have arrived, they've been bailed out, and that's been the falsity of it. Yes. Thank you very much. Yes. Exactly. Okay. Um, of course, an economic system needs some degree of risk, but I think we've seen quite a, a number of sort of egregious examples of people being rewarded for failure uh, and picking up uh, bonuses when, frankly, they don't deserve to. So, um, you know, I think there's obviously a balance, and we haven't managed to strike it thus far. Um, on holding politicians to account, yeah, look, it's the public's role and more specifically the faith community's role to do that. I mean, politicians are only often, their horizon is often tomorrow morning's headlines and it's very important that the faith communities as a whole, I think, hold politicians to account and remind them of what they pledged. Um, the recession is an opportunity, yeah. I, I mean, I, I like that narrative. I mean, it plays to some degree, although there are limits to it, um, if you've just, you know, <coughs> been handed your redundancy and with unemployment going up, expected to go up to three million by the end of the year. But clearly, I think the economic financial crisis is an opportunity to reevaluate what's important. Um, and it was very interesting to hear one aide to Obama say, you know, never waste a crisis. Uh, and I think it is, it, it is an opportunity to some degree. And... Um, faith? Engagement with faith? Engagements with How faith, can yeah. can be used yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, I think there are two things faith leaders can do. I mean, obviously, they can make the speeches, sign the letters, make the pronouncements, but perhaps more importantly, they can mobilize their communities into action. They did that incredibly successfully back in 2005 with Make Poverty History, and I think there has to be more to come from them. So. Right, Peter. Um, the, um, the Lord Jesus was clear that people who were in the commercial world of his day were people you should watch and learn some things from and not others. And uh, risk-taking was something you should learn from them. And risk-taking for yourself is something you should not learn from them. So I'm in favor of opportunism, risk-taking, courage, 
for the sake of what we call in Christian faith the kingdom of God, that is to say, for a world that is just and peaceable. I'm in favor of big risks being taken for that. And I think that um, if we attend to that, the leaders of faiths bringing people to take risks for the right things, that would make a big difference to our value system. Thank you very much. I think my watch is ahead of time, really, so I'm, we may have gone over time, for which I apologize to uh, just chair. But can I thank you all for your presence and for your thoughtfulness? And can I particularly invite us all to thank the panel for their wisdom and for sharing it with us so generously? <laughs> Just one final comment also from me to thank very much Anne Pettifer of the New Economics Foundation for chairing so excellently, as well as thanking all the speakers on behalf of Just Share and thanking all of you for coming. If you have time, please do stay for a, a glass of orange juice and some fair trade biscuits at the back. Thank you.